Thanks, Anne. Great to have that, uh, that reading before us today. It'd be great if you can keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking through that passage uh, now. And um, I'm going to pray, uh, add to Al's prayers, which are excellent, and ask that God would help us now uh, to make the most of this time. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this space in our week to turn our attention to your word. We pray now, Lord, that you would give us open ears, soft hearts, ready to hear and obey you, and we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be at work convicting and changing us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we're starting a series called Shine Like Stars, which is going to be looking at the book of Philippians over the course of this term. And uh, we've heard something of the background, and we're going to work through that this morning. What we want to do is set the scene for the letter that we'll be reading. And so today we're going to dive into the details as we, uh, as we sort of go along. As we begin, I, I wanted to ask you this question. I don't know if you've thought about it in quite this way. It's a how question. How could it be, how could it be that a carpenter, a carpenter from a town called Nazareth, who only taught for three years in the equivalent, I like to say, of Tasmania, change the empire in Rome pretty much in the course of his lifetime. It would not be until 300 AD before Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. But there is a church established in Rome, the Paris or New York of that world, within Paul's lifetime. How is it that a carpenter impacts the centre of the empire. The answer, of course, is the God who reveals himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you've been with us last term, you would have seen we looked at the God who is on mission in the Old Testament. God's always been wanting to do that and has been doing that through history. How did it happen more specifically? Well, through this amazing Jew named Paul and his missionary journeys, which we're going to find a little bit about uh, this morning. Well, it says here in Acts uh, 16, verse 12, from there we travelled, this is Paul, from there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. We're going to see Paul was a man of movement and mission. And uh, the letter to this church, this church in Philippi, that's going to be the focus of our, of our uh, preaching this term. So let's consider uh, the background and the setting. First of all, where is Philippi? I don't know if anyone here knows. If you do, bonus points to you, but let me show you. Uh, we start, Paul begins his first missionary journey in a place called Antioch, which is modern-day Syria. Uh, certainly not a place you would like to be today, no doubt. But God, in his mercy, formed a group of believers there from where... Paul was sent on mission, and he went from there and travelled around on his first missionary journey, which is the blue, uh, blue arrows that you can see there, uh, not very clearly. Uh, then this second missionary journey, Paul is travelling from Antioch, and it says, I don't know if you noticed in the text, it was very unusual, it said that the Spirit of Jesus kept them from going into Galatia and Bithynia. Did you see that? Very unusual, I thought. And so here's where Galatia and Bithynia are, because you won't find them on a map today, and they go across to Philippi, which is over here 
in what was called the province of Macedonia. If we come in a little bit closer, uh, you can see Philippi there on the other side. They had to catch a boat across from modern-day Turkey across to the other side uh, over there. But Philippi itself, it said, was a leading city of Macedonia. And if we come in a little bit closer, we can find out why. Philippi was situated on a thing called the, the Via Ignatia, and uh, it's, or the Ignatian Way, a major travel route that was put together to take trade and goods and soldiers from the west uh, over in Rome all the way across to the eastern edge of the empire. And so Rome was built on roads, if you know. All roads lead to... Very good, okay. The reason they say that is because there are a lot of them and they all pretty much led there, right? Okay, so here we are. One of those major roads is this one here. And Roman roads still exist today. You can still find them today. About two metres wide. And apparently many of them are worn in with the track marks of the carts that went down them actually into the stone because they were traversed so readily. But there aren't too many pieces of um, modern engineering that stand up to that sort of treatment, are there? Our roads fall apart as soon as it gets wet and the Romans are still going 2,000 years later. They did it well. So uh, Philippi, here's, here's a picture of uh, Philippi today. Uh, Philippi was on this Ignatian way, uh, this trade route, and it made them rich. It also made them influential. And around the area around Philippi, there were also gold mines. So again, a very rich area. The town of Philippi was relaunched after Mark Antony and Octavian uh, defeated Cassius and Brutus. Have you heard of Brutus before? What did Brutus do? Assassinated Caesar. Et tu Brute. Anyone? Yes, very good. So he, he was the man who stabbed, along with others, stabbed Caesar in the back and split the empire. The opposing forces, because there were some people who still thought that um, it was a good idea to have a, a line of continuity for the emperors, and decided that Brutus and Cassius needed to be ended. So a Roman civil war broke out, and the, the, the fight was fought in 42 BC, very close uh, to Philippi here. And uh, Mark Antony won, and uh, was declared the emperor eventually. But this battle was very important, because what happened afterwards was the, the new emperor settled soldiers from his winning side into the area and said, make this your area. This is your place. And more than that, he said that those who settled there would be citizens of Rome. Citizens of Rome. Now, not everyone was a citizen of Rome, particularly outside of Italy. So to have the status of being citizens was a very important thing. So they were citizens, they were ex-soldiers, and what that meant was they were very much trying to create a little Rome in Macedonia. Okay? Maybe Little Italy, perhaps, if you've been to cities that have a Little Italy in them. I'm sure there's lots of great pizza and pasta. Uh, what happens if you're a bunch of people who are trying to show your allegiance to the emperor, if you're proud of your citizenship? Well, you pick up something that was just getting underway in the first century, which is basically the cult of the emperor. I don't know if you've heard of this before, but what basically meant was that the Roman emperor would be treated as a divinity. In, in Latin, there was a way to say God and then this kind of other divinity word. In Greek, there wasn't. Everything is just God. And so what happened was the Roman emperor was 
known as, if you can believe this, this is true, was known as the Son of God. Does that ring true? We've heard that before somewhere. So here's the the Roman emperor. And if if you're in the provinces and you want to show allegiance to the emperor because, hey, we're really proud of our citizenship, then you're a town where the emperor, the cult of the emperor is lifted up and he is honored as a god. Right? That's important to know, isn't it? It's important context to know in the town of Philippi, there were people who were honoring the Roman emperor as a god. Here's an even more amazing thing that I found out as I was doing my research. There was another god. that The Romans had a whole pantheon of gods, right? You've heard of Zeus and Dionysus and all the rest of them. They're all, they're all up there. So they had a whole pantheon. But there was also, a, uh, in this area of Macedonia, there was actually a cult, another group of people that worshipped Theos Hypsistos. And you guys are all going, wow, that's really good. I'm glad I know this piece of information. You'll be more interested when I tell you what the translation is. The highest God. God most high. There's a group of people that weren't worshipping the God of the Hebrews, but a God called the God most high. A pagan God with that name. That's going to become very helpful for us a little bit later as we read through Acts chapter 16. So uh, Philippi is a city on this trade route, very pro-Rome and very religious and very pagan. Well, let's see what that first visit was like. Paul and his traveling companions are going to go uh, leave Antioch. And we actually see them leaving Antioch in the end of chapter 15 following a decision by the council in Jerusalem uh, to tell Jewish, uh, non-Jewish uh, churches throughout the, uh, the Christian world that they were going to be okay. They were going to be okay. They didn't need to be circumcised and become Jews. So th- th- this is kind of a thing that doesn't really concern us very much. When was the last time you thought about this? Not recently. Okay, that's basically because the Jewish council in Jerusalem, all the apostles and the very early church was looking at the the gospel going forward in all these Gentile places, places that weren't Jewish. And what the Christians were doing, who were mostly Jews at the start, were saying, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you really have to be a good Jew. So we're going to circumcise you and make you obey all the Jewish customs. And what this very important council did in Jerusalem was to say, no, they need to love and serve Jesus. And they need to stay away from sexual immorality and the meat of strangled animals. Apart from that, no problems. They can keep living their general life without becoming Jews. So Paul and his team were taking the good news of the Jerusalem Council, and they were being very systematic. I don't know if you see that in um, uh, in chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, uh, where uh, where a disciple named Timothy lived. What he was basically doing, I'm I'm calling it the bus stop tour. That's the picture behind, uh, behind the background there. He's just going through the churches that they'd established to tell them the good news. You don't have to become good Jews. You have to become faithful followers of Jesus. So here's Paul on his systematic bus stop tour through the early churches. What we see is something amazing. Have a look with me at verse, verses 4 and 5. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Now that is a wonderful thing to note, isn't it? Every single day, this little proto-church that had been begun was growing across the Roman world. Isn't that brilliant? 
can I encourage you guys, whatever we think about the media in Australia, that is true today. The Christian church throughout the world is growing every single day. I don't know if you know the number of Christians that are supposed to be in the world at the moment. The number sits at around 2 billion. Did you know that? That's quite a lot. The church was growing daily, and here it, had, uh, it started doing that and it has continued to this very day. Well, let's look a little bit further on. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll click back one click. Uh, I, I've, I was looking at this, uh, this next section here uh, as we go a couple of verses on, and it, it struck me. It's about guidance, right? It struck me that we're all very familiar to listen to a disembodied voice telling us where to go. Yes? You hop in the car and you say, take me home or whatever it is, turn right on this street and head up in 400 metres, turn left. I've now got to the point where I don't even look at the route. Anyone done this? I don't know, I don't know where it's going, I don't care. I, just, I push the thing and I say, take me home and I just start following wherever it's going. Turn left, okay. At this roundabout, take the fourth exit. You know? Okay, yeah, we're going this way. I don't know where I'm going. I just follow along. It's brilliant. I love it. I just listen to the voice and it tells me what to do. Well, funnily enough, that's exactly what happened in this passage here. So if we have a look, we see that in verse 6, Paul and his companions travelled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysa, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Now, what am I, what am I saying is happening here? I actually don't know. I don't know by what method they were guided to not go into those. I don't know if there was an angel standing there with a flaming sword going, don't go here. I don't know what it was, but they were absolutely clear that God was preventing them from going to these places. So they were guided. But I want you to see uh, that the the guidance of God needed to be discerned. Have a look at verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Have you ever had a dream? In this dream, a man of Macedonia is saying what? Come and help us. I want you to see that there is discernment needed here. Discernment, the ability to work out what's going on. Have a look at verse 10. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Why? Concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Can you see that? It wasn't actually God in the vision. God didn't appear to him and say, go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. It was a vision of a man saying, come and help us. They prayed and they reflected on the dream and the dream they concluded was God telling them to go and preach the gospel in Macedonia. Why do I tell you that? Some of us want to hear a voice from God telling us what to do. And sometimes we need to prayerfully discern it instead. Third point I wanted to point out here at this is what did they do? We, we've just studied Jonah a little bit recently in, uh, in the last term. What did Jonah do when he heard from God? He resisted and ran away, didn't he? And look how that turned out. He ended up covered in fish vomit. Here I want you to see how faithful Paul is. Dream, discernment, decision. Do you see that? He is a faithful man. So the immediate thing he does is, I'm going to obey. Of course I'm going to obey. I'm going to Macedonia. Pack up your stuff, guys. We're off. That's pretty faithful, isn't it? All right. What happened when they got there? 
Uh, this is actually the river just outside of Philippi. Uh, incidentally, ancient towns will generally always have a source of water nearby. That makes sense, doesn't it? You, you have to found your town somewhere where there's water. And so this is the river today at Philippi. And if we have a look at verses uh, 13 and following, on the Sabbath, so they get across the sea, on the Sabbath we went to the city gate, uh, went through the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now it's intriguing for me that they expected to find a place of prayer outside the city. Where, where did Paul always go first? Anyone know? Where did Paul always go first when he came into a new town? To the synagogue. He went to the Jewish center of teaching because he figured these are the people God's been preparing. If the, if, the, if the series last term taught us anything, God has been on mission in the Old Testament. So where am I going to find people prepared for God's mission? Well, in the synagogue, aren't I? So when they get to Philippi, however, they go through the city gate and out to a river to find a place of prayer. Why? I believe it's because there's no synagogue in Philippi. And it actually says he went out to find a place where they gathered with the women who were there. Did you notice that? Here's my second thought. I believe that if you have 12 Jewish men, you can start a synagogue. So if it's a group of women meeting outside the city, what am I concluding? No blokes who are God-fearers basically in the town. That's pretty interesting information, isn't it? So they go outside to the place of prayer. And then something has to happen for people to actually be saved. One of those listening, oh, sorry, we sat down uh, to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a, a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer of purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. See, here's the thing. It's not just a matter of fellowship when we go on mission. We don't just go and love people and serve them. We have to speak. We have to speak the good news or people can't be saved. The saving is God's work, though, isn't it? Who opened her heart? It says the Lord opened her heart. And then she said, when, uh, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. How long did it take to be baptized? I don't think it took any time. Great, you're a follower of Jesus. I see a river. I'll get you in that. Great, okay, now what are we going to do? And she says, well, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come to my house. Come and stay at my house. So the first response of this saved woman is hospitality. You are now family with me. You can't be strangers in this town. Come and stay at my house. Isn't that beautiful? They only met that morning. She met Jesus, and the next thing she does is express the fellowship that's found in Jesus. How beautiful. So Paul and Silas and Timothy don't sleep on the streets that night, do they? They sleep in the house of a woman who God obviously prepared for them. And so I want you to know, this is, I think this is one of those beautiful facts. Lydia is the first European convert. She's the first convert in all of Europe. Can you think of the influence that Europe has had on Western civilization? Can you think of the impact that Christianity has had through Europe on the world? The first convert in Europe is a woman. I love it. And her name is Lydia. We're told her name. How beautiful. Preserved for all eternity. Her name is Lydia. And I think she's an independent, God-fearing, mature businesswoman. How great's that? She's a dealer in purple, purple cloth. 
that would not have been something that she would have done as a side hobby. That would have been her work. And since she and her whole household were baptised, I actually think it's reasonable to consider that she was probably a widow. So here's a widow, a woman, and a worker who is God's first convent, convert in, uh, in, in Europe. I just think it's fabulous that we have that detail. So God has started his church in Philippi. What do we see next? Everyone thinks it's a good idea in Jordan's every. Is all right? Let's have a look and see. In verses 16 to 24, we see an amazing issue. We have Paul going out to the place of prayer where he met a female slave, verse 16, who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. It actually says a python spirit. There was an oracle in Delphi, and the god Apollos is mixed up with this, and a serpent spirit was used to prophesy the future. It's pretty dodgy, dark stuff. And this actually says she had a serpent spirit. So this woman is involved in that sort of cult. It says she earned a great deal of money for her followers by fortune telling. Uh, What she was able to tell them, I don't know. But it was supernatural and it was not of God. And here's what I can tell you about fortune telling that is not of God. It is evil. It will enslave you and it will be designed to destroy you. There is no harmless fortune-telling in this world. If you're in touch with the spiritual force that is outside of the living God, it wants to destroy you and enslave you. Do not dabble with fortune-telling. This woman was announcing something extraordinary. These men are servants of, what does it say? Verse 17, the most high God, who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, our first response is to go, this is brilliant. Here's somebody walking around shouting after Paul, these are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Again and again and again. And you think, great, that's brilliant, isn't it? Why wouldn't you want that? Well, first of all, this is absolutely fascinating. Do you remember what I said about God most high? It's actually potentially incredibly confusing announcement. These are servants of Most High God. Oh, yeah, we know about Most High God. He's one of the gods of our area. These are servants of Most High God telling you a way to be saved. Paul is utterly committed to the proclamation of Jesus as the Savior. He doesn't want any what's called syncretism, mixing of religions. He's not into that. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nothing else. There is no other name given to men by which you may be saved. That's Paul's message. So he looks at a demon-possessed, annoyingly loud woman who follows them around again and again and again, proclaiming that, and eventually gets sick of it. He says, quiet, come out. And I think, apart from the fact that that's brilliant, I think we just miss the mercy, because what happens next is we get swept up in the story. The owners of the slave girl go, oh no, our chance for making money is gone now that this demon who's helping uh, tell something about the future is cast out of her. She's just an ordinary girl. Dump her. We're really angry. Financial loss. Yeah? Here's what I think. I think we miss the mercy. There was a woman here a woman who is an afflicted slave girl 
who's the possession of men. She's a slave, yeah? She's the possession of men and possessed by a spirit. And we rush straight past it. I I think Luke rushes straight past it, to be honest. But we don't ever see anyone who's been exorcised who is left the same. In Jesus' ministry, those who have a demon cast out of them are in their right mind and are completely changed. And I don't want you to miss this. I want you to see the second convert after the household of Linnea is a woman who is disempowered and trapped. And she is set free by Paul's ministry. How brilliant is that? But then we must say that it does get a little bit pear-shaped after that, doesn't it? Well, the men who figure they've lost their economic advantage go and take Paul and his companions before the court. Well, actually, don't get to the courts, do they? They get to the street and they say, these guys are doing the wrong thing. They're proclaiming another God. They're in all sorts of trouble. We should, we should get rid of them. And so a complete, uh, a complete uh, nightmare breaks out. Um, have a look at verse 20. These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar. Who's doing the throwing into uproar? By advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Lest you think that's nice, there's no whip even here. This is just rods. They're just beaten in the street. So that night, Paul and his companions are in jail. They're in jail, and something extraordinary happens in this next passage from 25 to 40. Here's the extraordinary thing. They're in jail. They're beaten, bleeding. They're in stocks. You know what stocks are? They're not into the the stock market. They're they're locked up. They're, They're incarcerated. They're in this jail. It's the middle of the night, and Paul and Silas are singing praise to God. And everyone's listening and going, I wish these guys had piped down. I'm just trying to get some sleep here. No, I reckon they're blown away. Who can you still be singing to? Surely your God has abandoned you if you've been beaten and locked in jail. And here's Paul and Silas, and they're singing praise to God about the victory of Jesus. The head scratcher, isn't it? Would have been for everyone in the jail. And then there's an earthquake. How good's that? Earthquake. All the doors open and the chains fall off them. Not quite sure how earthquakes and chains falling off is. I think God's in the mix is basically what I think is going on here. Okay? So all the doors open. That's my picture there. And the Roman jailer decides, what do I need to do? I need to run myself through. The, the Romans have a big honor, shame kind of culture. And if, if all the prisoners have gone I, and I meet my boss tomorrow, I'm in big trouble. So what do I need to do? I need to run myself through with my sword. I need to fall on my sword. It's very big in Rome. Let's not do that. So here he is, a man filled with shame. And Paul says, stop, don't do it. We're all still here. Now, why they were all still there, I don't know. I suspect everyone was a little bit scared. Then the jailer comes in, he falls to his knees, and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is an extraordinary question, isn't it? Beaten, abused, troublemaking, Jewish kind of people There's all these other gods that could be responsible, but this man walks into their room, falls on the ground and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Tell me what your God is on about. Because I heard you singing to him when you were in trouble and he just set you free and you didn't run away. Tell me what I must do to be saved. See, here's the third convert that's in this story, a shame-filled Roman public servant. Yeah? 
He's the guy in charge of a jail. I don't know if he's the sharpest tool in the shed. I don't know how that works. I'm not sure. But the thing is, this man could have ended his life. Paul and Silas were set free. This man was trapped. They announced the gospel and the jailer was set free. How good's that? The jailer was set free. And salvation comes to his house. It's absolutely brilliant. Well, that's how the church was founded. A businesswoman, a slave girl, a public servant. It's not too bad, is it? You could build a church on that. I want you to notice, though, it's always their households. Our vision at New Life is to see New Life come to every home. What do we see here? Whole households coming to believe. Your responsibility for your household is huge. Bring them up to know and love Jesus. Why, Tara and Phil, it is wonderful that you brought your boys to be dedicated today. Whole households believing. That's what we want to see. So this letter, this letter was written to that church, that church that was founded there. Who wrote it? A man called Paul. Where did he write? From the city of Rome where he himself found himself in jail many years later. Paul's in jail in Rome. When? About 61 AD. If you want to have a long chat with me, I can tell you the three other places he could have been writing from and a couple of other dates he could have been writing, but I reckon this is the best guess. He's in Rome. It's 61 AD. Why does he write? Paul writes because of something that is at the heart of what started the church. It's called the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus. The gospel is the heart of what Paul is saying here. So we have Paul. He's in jail, and he has concern for his church that he founded. We have the Philippians who are suffering persecution in Philippi. Can anyone figure out why it might be tough to be a Christian in Philippi? We're not going to worship the emperor And we're going to tell you there's only one way. How do you reckon that'll work out for you? So there's suffering persecution and there's some unrest amongst their people. What does Paul want to do? Paul wants to point them through the gospel to Christ, to Jesus, to say, as you suffer joyfully, as you suffer joyfully, you'll find the ability to do that is in Jesus Christ. Look to him. And Paul will encourage them, this is how I found Jesus to be the most important person in my life. So it's around the gospel, it's for the Philippians, it's pointing them to Christ. And so what does he do? Well, we hear news of his imprisonment and of the return of a man called Epaphrodites. We see Paul wanting to thank them for the gift that they sent to support him in prison. We see Paul encouraging them to keep going in their, in their race with Jesus. We see him telling him his concern for them. We see him, he's concerned to say, guys, stop fighting, don't fight. But mostly, I see a beautiful picture of friendship. Paul loves the Philippians. He's never angry with them. He calls them partners in the gospel. It's a beautiful picture. So how's the book organized? Well, I'll give you the slide in the the newsletter this week. But chapter one, joy in living. Chapter two, joy in serving. Chapter uh, Chapter three, joy in knowing Jesus. And chapter four, Joy in resting in Jesus. These are the sermons we're going to preach on our way through the series, and you'll see them as we go through. Okay, so what should we apply? Great background. What do I do with what I heard today? First thing to say, salvation is absolutely, absolutely the main game, both in this church and in Philippi, salvation. And we saw that who can be saved? Rich people, poor people, public servant people. The whole gamut. Everyone can be saved. 
Paul says, don't just be saved. He says in Philippians, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want everyone here to know what it is to follow Jesus. And we say this again and again, but today's a great day to be saved. But if you do know Jesus, the book of Philippians will tell you, don't stop at being saved. We want to encourage you to be faithful, adventurous, compassionate, and to endure. We want you to continue to work out your salvation. So keep coming back. We're going to tell you how to do that over the next 10 weeks. The book of Philippians tells us that there will be opposition when we talk of salvation. It wasn't just in ancient Philippi that opposition to the gospel existed, was it? Anyone felt any pushback recently? So what do we do when we want to announce the good news of Jesus, but we get opposition? Well, Paul tells us in the book of Philippians, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Brothers and sisters, we're going to hear that we are called, we are called to suffer for the gospel. Yeah, write that down on your application card, hey? But here's the thing. Salvation is that important, it'll be worth suffering, but that's, that's a pretty hard word. Here's the thing that Paul sits over the top of everything. As Stuart said, this is where we're going to finish today. It's not just suffering and opposition. The Christian walk that you are called to is one of joy. It's one of joy, great joy, abiding joy, regardless of the circumstances, because of the glory of where we are going, because of the joy of being called servants of Jesus. And so here's probably the most famous verses in Philippians, and this is where I want to finish today. What does Paul say to his church? Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. That's where we're heading. I can't wait for the next 10 weeks. I'm going to pray that we'd be ready. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy of your salvation. We thank you for the privilege of being called to follow Jesus. Lord, we ask that we might be able to stand in the midst of the opposition because of the joy set before us, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await our Saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, help us to stand full of joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.